0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace. Offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started.
1: I'm April Vokey and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Skip Morris is the author of over 20 fly fishing books and hundreds of fly fishing articles. He's been a well-known personality in the fly fishing industry long before my time, and I was genuinely excited to get to know him better. In this episode of Anchored, Skip shares his incredible journey as a professional fly tire. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and its incredible pheasant hunting. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you beg, hunting is our shared legacy and everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to HuntTheGreatestSD.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's www.HuntTheGreatestSD.com.
2: I was born in Seattle, raised on Mercer Island, which uh, I always regretted, to be honest with you. I mean, it's not that it was a bad place, but... You know, I always wanted to live out in the country when I was a kid, and I don't know if that kind of fueled my my love of fishing or not, that I couldn't get to it easily. But uh we I did fish a lot. I, you know, Mercer Island's in a lake and it was a bit of a polluted lake, so we could catch chub, we could catch perch, you know, but not trout, not bass, and and so we'd go down and sit all day in some vacant lot by the water and uh cast bobbers out and watch them. And that's I did that from the time I was a little kid. And then uh got into a bunch of stuff that I love to do. One of them was fly tying and fly fishing. I think I started tying about, I'm probably answering questions you were planning to ask. <laughs> do you want okay. me to just you stop for there? it <laughs> No, not at all. You, you let it roll
1: and keep going. Keep going.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I, I, I loved fishing from the time I was little, tiny. And uh, and I started tying flies somewhere around age 10 or 11. And then probably around 12 or 13, I actually took up fishing those flies that's, that's takes us through age 13.
1: Why, what do you think started your interest in, in fishing? Was it mom and dad?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, once I was exposed to it, I wanted to do it whenever it was possible. And that, that goes so far back. Um, when I was, uh, from the time I was really young, my dad was a, uh, my mom and dad raced sailboats when I was a kid, when I actually, before I was born, and my dad was just an avid boater from the time he was a little kid. You know, for me, it was fishing for and some other things. But for him, it was boats. For Actually, for me, it was music and fishing and a few other things. For him, it was boats and music. He was a professional musician for some years. Um, but anyway, when my dad ended up selling yachts, he became a yacht salesman natural thing for a musician, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, he was, uh, we would get boats all the time because he loved boats. We were on boats all the time, summer, winter, and we would fish. And I, I can't, I have to say, I didn't like trolling. He trained me to hate trolling because you know, he'd say <clears throat> other kids would give their right arm. He always liked to say that to be sitting there in the sun, holding a rod, waiting for a fish to hit. And, and you know, you can have my right arm. You know, I got so tired of that, but, um, So that I didn't care for, (laughs) but that didn't stop me from loving fishing. And we were on the docks or something. I'd be going ashore looking for someplace to catch fish or I'd be fishing off the dock and catching maybe dogfish or something. And if I was real lucky, maybe a rockfish, black rockfish. But uh, yeah, I just, you know, honestly, I think the simple answer is it was in my blood. I just, uh, you know, once I knew it could be done, I'd, I'd look at a, I'm sure I'm not by any means the only person to go through this, but I mean, I could look at a swimming pool and think. You know, if you got the chlorine out of there, (laughs) you know, and you got a few water weeds going, you could put plant fish in there. And I, it's just the way my life was. I'd look at a mud puddle and think fish.
1: Do you remember the first time that you tried fly fishing?
2: I do. I do. Yeah. I actually wrote an essay about it. Um, It was when I was around 12 or 13. And a friend of mine and I were fishing a creek east of Seattle. And we had been fishing. I mean, I carried flies, and I carried a fly reel, an old rickety piece of junk. And uh, and we, I would carry the flies, but I just was kind of afraid to try them. I don't know why. I mean, it, partly I think I, I figured, you know, everything had to be just right, and there's no way my trout would take a fly. I don't know why I thought that. But to, to shorten that story before it gets too long, uh, I did try a fly that day, and I caught a bunch of Just little dinky cutthroat trout. The biggest was probably seven inches maybe. But they took a dry fly, and I was just thrilled. And then after that, you know, I look out creeks. I was all over them.
1: So then where do you go from there? You're obviously in school at that point, high school, I presume. And you're fishing all throughout high school?
2: Yeah. Well, I no, I think I was probably younger, quite a bit younger in high school. I was probably 12 or 13 when that happened. So... I don't think that would even be junior high yet, but I'm not sure. Um, but oh yeah, I, I fished all through high school and I, until I got my driver's license, I became ever more skillful at, you know, using guilt and all kinds of pressure, including begging and to get my dad to drive me out to fish somewhere. And I was, I got really skilled at that. And so got to fish a lot. And, uh, Poor guy, he had a bad back, and he would sit in the car and try go. Oh, this is uncomfortable, and he'd wait, you know, for hours. Um, But yeah, so all through high school, you bet, I was fishing the lakes, fishing the rivers, and then when we go on the boat, I would fish the salt water, and yeah, I just love to do it.
1: At what point did you decide I'm going to try to make a career out of this?
2: Um, you know, that's the the story that's funny about that, which really did happen. Honest to God, when I was really young, I was, I mean one of the things that led me to fly fishing was reading Roderick Haig Brown. Uh, our library had a big section on him and i loved reading him. And I read him over and over and I still read him uh, partly because he was just such a beautiful writer, but uh, partly because uh, you know, I just love his work. And anyway, so uh, I, my parents asked me when I was probably 12, 13, 15, something like that. They said, what are you going to do for a living when you grow up? And I said, I want to tie flies for a living and write fly fishing books. And they got a big laugh out of that. You know, nobody does that. Well,
1: was was there anyone doing it at that time? Were, Were there any professionals doing that?
2: I think, um, there were, um, I don't think Dave Whitlock got going until about sixty nine, so that was a little later than that. But uh, Joe Brooks, I would say, probably was making a living at it. You know, he was on television a lot, and he was—I mean, he—he he was one of the very few. But if—if if there were even very any others, but he was—he uh, was on television a lot, and he was—he wrote a lot of books, and I—I I own at least—I own one. I've read several Joe Brooks books. Really enjoyed him.
1: Did you ever want to be on television?
2: Um. I don't think it even occurred to me. I thought it was pretty cool, though. I mean, you know, we we didn't have much in the way of television shows to watch when I was a kid that were about fishing. Um, We had... Joe Brooks and and the American Sportsman. Sometimes I don't know if he was even on there, but the American Sportsman was a show, I believe it was on Saturday afternoons. And once in a while they would go fishing. And a lot of times it was somebody like Bing Crosby, and he'd out, be out there going, you know, you know, and casting. <laughs> it was really kind of weird. But still, they were fishing. And uh, and there was a guy named Gadabout Gaddis and he was, he was pretty funny. He uh, made these sort of home movies and they would, he would show them and then he would narrate them because he didn't have sound. I guess it was just too expensive to do sound and film. And he would go different places and fish. And it was fairly often fly fishing. He was the flying fisherman. I don't, I'm sure you're too young to probably have even heard of him, but he would jump in his Piper Cub or whatever kind of airplane he had and they'd show him taking off. And then he'd, Go somewhere and he would fish for a half hour, most of it, and then he'd, he'd show him taking off and flying home, and he would narrate the whole thing.
1: So tying flies, though, as Ooh. for a living, uh, and not really wanting to be on television, was this was this a realistic goal? Looking back now, and did you actually pursue it?
2: I've never worried much about realistic. You know, honestly, I mean i I took up the guitar at nineteen, and then I just lived it night and day and still kept fishing. And then I ended up as a professional musician full time for a few years. Um, Things can happen if you want it badly enough. And, and uh, I went into rod building uh, in about 1980. I just loved making flyards and designing them, designing the cutting of the graphite and the selection of the mandrel and the part of the mandrel, the graphite was tacked to. And, and I did that for 10 years and just loved it. And then I didn't want to do it anymore, but uh, I always loved fly tying and I, I kind of had three big periods where for two or three years, it's all I could think of except Carol, of course, and fishing and guitar. But uh, yeah. And then the last time I was, I remember I was time for Kaufman's the big, I gotta be the biggest fly fishing mail order operation in the world since left us. But, uh, and I just fell in love with fly tying again. And then that's when I went to fly tying and started writing the fly tying books and doing all that stuff. So yeah.
1: And I've got a couple questions in and around all of this. So music, it's interesting. A lot of my guests have a similar story in that they were musicians or are musicians. And they've got this parallel of this, you know, this love for fly fishing. Why is that? And I myself am a musician. I'm a just, I'm a vocalist. I'm not as talented on the, on an instrument as you are by any means. But why is music so such a common denominator with fly fishers.
2: You know, I I have noticed that too that a high percentage of of uh, musicians are fly fishers. And I really don't know although, you know, music of course is art and there must be something about that that appeals to the artist. That's the only thing I can think of because otherwise I don't know because musicians don't come of a type. I've played with hundreds of musicians professionally and They're every kind of person and the same is true in the arts. And I'm sure you've noticed both. Uh, So it's not as though it attracts a certain, you know, personality, but there's something there. I think, I think you're right about that, but what it is, (laughs) I don't know.
1: Yeah. I always kind of want to take a a deep dive into it. Is it rhythm? Is it that it's meditative? Is it that we can sing and no one bugs us when we're out there? I don't know, but I, I have found that it's quite popular among, you know, musicians.
2: Well, I mean, any musician or artist i think who who's of any does anything of any value at least in some level, even if they're a complete aggressive jerk most of the time, there's something inside them that is very sensitive uh, I believe, and maybe that's it. I mean, you know you think about fly fishing it's a it's a genteel mostly i mean you know but it's mostly a genteel kind of contemplative sport, not not like playing rugby or something like that. And, and maybe that's it. And it's an intricate sport and boy, huh, you get, I mean, I taught music at a college. I mean, you get into music theory and all that, or, or just into jazz in general, and you've got all these, these incredible number of sequences you can apply to scales and all these harmonic things you can do and you can play on extensions. I mean, it's just an incredibly complex world. And in a way, I think fly fishing has that too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you. Now, the books. So your first book, how does this all come about? You're tying for Kaufman's. Who puts the idea in your head?
2: Well, you know, actually, my first book was uh, The Custom Graphite Fly Rod. And it was published in 1989 by uh, uh, Nick Lyons. It was either Nick Lyons Books or Lyons and Burford, something like that. But that was my first book. And then my second book was a little over two years later, and that was for Frank Amato, and that was Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. And it's sort of funny how it happened. I'd, I'd never written for Frank, and I sent Nick – I don't know if I should say too much about Nick, <laughs> but um, I'll just say I like Nick. He's great. But um, I th- bottom line is he turned down this book of fly tying, and I didn't have any reputation as a fly tire. I mean, I'd I'd entered a bunch of contests and won. Great. But that doesn't mean much. And, uh, <clears throat> so I, I turned around and I actually wasn't proposing a book to Frank, but I met him at the, uh, what was FFF fly Federation of fly fishers? That's what they used to be called when they had it in Eugene, Oregon. And I was living in Oregon at the time. And I met Frank and I had just, uh, submitted an article to him after, a after I had submitted a, uh, a proposal and I got talking with him at the FFF thing, and he started talking. He was real interested in doing what he, what I think was, and he thought, was the first all-color fly-tying book. And uh, so it, it went from there, and there was Clear and Simple, which is going to come out again. It, it went through something like 26 printings, which is a lot.
1: Unbelievable. That's a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the book that allowed me to have a career in fly fishing, really.
1: Right. So did it just open up doors? Did opportunity come in after that?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote for Frank, uh, you know, all my, all my books after that for some years were for Frank Amato publications. So and for people
1: listening, sorry to cut you up, sorry to cut you off, skip, but for people listening, how many books now have you written?
2: Carol, you're my memory. How many books have, written? have I written published? Is it 21? Yeah. 21. It's a lot of books. It is. (laughs) It is. (laughs) It's an amazing amount of work. I mean, if you're trying to do your best prose, you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, and then you get away from it, and then you rewrite again. And then there's the photos and the research is as big as anything on most of them. So yeah, it's huge. But actually, I love it. I mean, it's frustrating at times. It's very, very hard work, but I really enjoy it.
1: Right. Now we keep referring back to Carol, and I need to bring Carol into this. So at what point in your life did you guys meet?
2: Uh, let's see. We met, um, in, it was late in 1990, actually. And, uh, she was my veterinarian.
1: Oh, cool.
2: I mean, she was my new veterinarian basically. And I had seen her maybe two or three times. And the last time I saw her, I said, you know, doc, if you're not doing anything tonight, I'm playing down at this club. Um, come down and I'll buy you a drink. And so she did. And, uh, that's what happened.
1: <laughs> I didn't realize that you had been together that long.
2: For yeah. some reason,
1: I, I was thinking it was only in the last 20 years, but that's, I mean, wow. How, how long ago is that? That's that's over 30 years ago.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, what's this? Uh, we just celebrated our, what, 29th anniversary? Yeah, we got married two years after we met, and so this would be the big 30.
1: Gotcha. Oh, good. I'm happy <laughs> we asked. I, I also honestly thought you were in your late 50s, so I, I had my timeline way off.
2: Oh no, I'm fine with that. If there's anything you can do to make that <laughs> an actuality, I'd I'd be in.
1: <laughs> I, I think that I I think that I got to a certain age and then I just have never allowed myself to go past that age. Do you Do you have that? Do you, is there an age that you've stuck yourself at? Like I still honestly think I'm 28 years old. I think I'll I'll be 70 and I'll still think mm-hmm. I'm 28.
2: Well, it's always you know the. Uh, this whole fly fishing thing has been so great for me, but for some reason, I always think of myself in the seventies, which of course is a hugely outdated decade now, but, you know, I was traveling around six days a week with bands and up and down the West coast and having a great time. And I just kind of remember those years as being great years. I, I loved college. I didn't care much for high school and before that much, but um, especially on Mercer Island, which... Back then, at least, was real, what they we called clicky. Had all these little groups, and it was kind of exclusive. But college was just amazing. And then, I don't know, 70s were great. I felt like I just kind of blossomed, and, and everything went right. But uh,
1: Do you still feel like you're that guy? Do you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> Maybe. I think there is some of that. You know, all those years of, of getting up on stage six nights a week and talking with an audience, I'm sure it changed my personality in ways that I don't even understand. I don't see how it couldn't, honestly. And dealing with drunks, a lot of drunks and, you know, 20 drunk, 20 years olds being abusive and all. But I still, I loved it. I loved it. And I learned to, I adjusted to it.
1: Well, that actually segues me perfectly into my next question. I always think about you as the guy behind the vice and behind the book. And I'm a little bit shocked by it because with your personality and with how charismatic you are and your experience on stage, I would have honestly thought that you would have taken more of a Lee Wolf or Joe Brooks kind of um, public role someone who is trying to be on camera doing television. Was that a conscious decision? Did you decide that you didn't want to be that sort of personality?
2: No, I mean, I, I had nothing against that. My dad was a radio and television announcer when I was a kid. I mean, I've kind of been around it uh i'm actually pretty shy but you know that's that's really typical of people who who take the stage you know i mean stand up comics the bravest performers in the world are cla- almost always wallflowers but uh so i i it always appealed to me i've always enjoyed it but i think um and i have done quite a bit of it i was i was one of the hosts on a tv show for a few years and uh, fly Fish TV. And, and I've done a bunch of, I did a bunch of videos back when a video actually meant something, you know, and it wasn't, you couldn't get them right and left on YouTube, but, uh, um, and i so I've done a fair amount of that stuff, but no, I wasn't like lefty, you know, one of those guys who knows how to promote the heck out of himself. So I've kind of gone up and down, you know, uh, in the public eye, I suppose. But, you know, I just, the things I wanted to do, I wanted to do them so passionately, I think that's part of it that I just really concentrated on those mostly. And that was, that's been writing books or researching them. I mean, I, I just, I so enjoy that. Uh, it's so exciting to, just to, to come up with a new fly I, idea for a fly pattern and then test it and test it and change it and change it and then finally give up on it. But even that's kind of exciting because that you get some ideas and then you go off with something else. But um, yeah, new techniques. I mean, I, I the last couple of years I've been working a lot with a couple of techniques I got from a, a an Englishman who moved to the Deep South, Davy Watton, who's really into wet flies and soft hackles. Do you know Davy, or have you met?
1: Oh yeah, that ago? well, that Welshman. He's he's yeah. <laughs> I love
2: him. <laughs> <laughs> he's a yeah, he's a kick in the pants. I I really love Davy, but I I wrote about some of his techniques, and then so I ended up talking with him on the phone and and doing a lot of emailing and I've just really gotten into that stuff lately. So, I mean, that kind of distracts you if you've got a sort of a broadcasting career in mind. (laughs) So I just concentrated on what I loved, you know,
1: how do you stay excited and enthusiastic after 21 books? Because at some point don't you just run out of ideas?
2: Well, you would think so, but it's just amazing. I mean, I, I, Sometimes people ask me, well, people who don't tie flies or, or especially people who don't tie flies or fly fish, they say, well, how many fly, fly, fly time books can you write? I mean, there's can only be a few ways to tie a fly. And, you know, when they say that, I think, yeah, the problem should be. But really, I mean, it's just amazing. And, and you know, you know, as well as I do, there are just hundreds of ways and variation and even more variations of those ways to wrap something onto a hook, you know, with thread. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And, uh, there's always something new to learn. I think the, the big change for me is about seven or eight years ago I decided, you know, I've always loved writing and I decided that it is time if I'm going to do it, (laughs) uh, to just get serious about writing. And I made a decision. I was tired of playing clubs. I'd, I'd loved it every gig until, that last couple of months. And when that happens with me, I know what it means. So I pretty much put the guitars away. I hardly touch them at all. I quit practicing. I quit playing the gigs I, and I added some hours to that and I put it all into writing. So I've been, uh, you know, analyzing the work of, of, uh, Oh, lots of writers. Uh, Tim Gattro, one of my favorites, uh, Hemingway and, and working very hard at improving my own writing for about seven years. And I hope it's helping. But I'm enjoying it, the challenge of it.
1: Do you have that one big dream that you just you can't stop thinking about? Like have you ever thought about writing a fiction or writing something that's not instructional?
2: Um yeah. I mean, I I have written and self-published a book of essays. And I think I'm a much better writer than I did, but that was only not much over a year ago. I like to hope I'm a better writer, but I think it's good. And it's called 500 Trout Streams. Since you mentioned it, I can mention it, but, uh, and I'm going to do more of that. I've got another one just about finished. Uh, I mean, I like, I write maybe two hours a morning on, on literary stuff. And, uh, I have had some essays published, um, as far as a dream, you know, I have written some fiction. I have had essays published, but I haven't had fiction published. Um, it would be cool. I mean, the amazing thing would be to get a short story published in the New Yorker. And there are other magazines that publish great fiction, but that's kind of the one that gets is the the pinnacle. Doesn't mean they always get the best, but (laughs) they always get amazing fiction. So that would be incredible. And I don't know if that's even possible, possible to dream about, but yeah, I get daydreams, but I would also like to, uh, Get my my essays up to the point that uh, I could publish books of essays with publishers. Um, I'm working on it.
1: <laughs> it won't be as far off as you think. So, fly tying made clear and simple is going back into printing again. So, what is this going to be the 28th time? How many times do we say?
2: You know, it's a good question because my <laughs> I I got estimates from my from my first publisher, Amato, and they didn't know anymore. They they got to where they had this long line across the bottom of you know showing which edition it was. And then they said, we're done doing that. So they don't even know, but it's probably 26, 27, something like that.
1: So what makes this book so special?
2: Um, You know, the last person to ask that of, of course, is the author, because, (laughs) you know, we always think our book is the best. But uh, since you did ask, I'll tell you that, well, you know, when I did that book, this is kind of interesting, I feel. Um, I found a couple of guys who had never tied flies and who had no background in it. And I worked them hard. I would get one guy over and I would have him read what I'd written, no photos, and then try to do what was written. And then he'd say, well, I don't quite understand this. Then I'd take some notes. Then I'd he'd look at it and he'd say, Uh, okay, that kind of makes sense. And I'd write something again. Then he would go home after tying one fly for a couple hours and I would have the next guy come over. They both had the last name of Davis. I don't know what that's about. They were not related. They were both musicians too, by the way. But um, then the second guy would come over with the new notes. You know, I'd written th- through the new notes, and he would try it. And then if he had a problem, I would change it again. So I did this through every fly in the book, and I think that made it a much better book. And then I rewrote the sin out of it, and uh, you know, tried to organize it in a way that I that I really thought would would just be easy and make sense. And then I I got this idea to do sections in the book with each fly where. You're tying the fly, and you get through one step, and then there's a little section that says that step, like binding on the tail. And then it says problems, solutions, and suggestions. And there are several points there that I got mainly from these two Davises, <laughs> and uh, then they that helps you get through that step if you're having any trouble or you just want to do it better. And so the whole book is like that. All all the flies, and I tried to pick absolutely classic flies. Um, I mean. You know, for a parachute I picked the light Cahill parachute, which is a great parachute. And I and what else is in there, Carol? There's the hairs gold ribbed hairs here, of course. And yeah, yeah. I mean it's the woolly buggers in there, just flies that aren't gonna ever go away, or not in my lifetime anyway. So I, I picked those very carefully. And so that's what I think is good about it.
1: That's a great idea to do that without photos having the guys trying to follow instructions. That's fantastic. So are all of oh. the flies in that book flies from other tires or any of your own patterns in there?
2: I believe there are two of my own out of the 11 or 12. There's the skip nymph. Um, and then there is the uh, Morris stone, which is a stone fly nymph imitation. They're all standard flies.
1: How do you test your patterns? And I'll give you some context to where I'm going with this next section of okay. the conversation. Nowadays with the internet and as you know the magic of being online you can just catch a fish on one fly and then promote it as a crazy fish catcher and sell it commercially and mm-hmm. and it looks good in the box and it really hasn't had that much sampling. Do you think that there needs to be more testing?
2: Well, I mean certainly we never almost never know how much somebody has tested a fly but the way I feel about it is I you know i i will go out and fish a fly and i do believe this a lot it gets talked about a lot you hear about it people go out they fish a fly they catch a bunch of fish they go this is a great fly they write an article about it maybe they even get it into a, one of the fly manufacturers uh lines but i just think that's wrong i mean the the thing i've run into is that a fly sometimes i'll go out and i will catch a bunch of fish on it whether they're bass or trout whatever and then The next time I can't catch anything on it. (laughs) And then the next two times I start to see the flaws in it. Maybe it doesn't hook fish as well as it does or hold them as well as it does. Maybe it doesn't sit right on the water. Or when I look at it in the water, it's really not swimming right. I mean, there's so many things, little things that can make a big difference that can go wrong. Or maybe it's just too fragile. Sometimes you think a fly is tough, but the way you tied it. My flies are often tied in sort of strange ways that nothing really radical, but just in ways that nobody else ties a fly. And I, it's simply to make them come out the way I want them to come out. Um, I, I go through this every time I teach a fly tying seminar or, or, you know, I, people are, like well, I've never seen that before. And that's because they haven't. Um, but anyway, that's getting off subject. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm very thorough. I, I will take a year, two years, three years. And then sometimes I will f- declare a fly done. It'll go out there in the world. And I want to change it because I then after three, five years, I'll find something that not necessarily that a flaw, but something that would improve it. Uh, Then then you get that problem that people are used to it. And do you want to mess with that? And, you know, but yeah, that's the process that I follow.
1: Coming up, Skip and I continue our conversation. Thank you again to South Dakota for making this episode possible. Hunting brings us together. It's a human tradition. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you bag. It's our shared legacy. And while pheasant hunting has always been a part of South Dakota's story, they're making the next chapter even greater, welcoming all types of hunters and boosting sportswomen's voices That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. You'll also find public land maps, information about the seasons, incredible pheasant recipes, and resources for beginners. It's all at huntthegreatestsd.com. Again, that's www.huntthegreatestsd.com. Now, I mean, look, I'd love to dork out on fly tying if that's okay with you for a bit.
2: Yeah, I do it all the time.
1: Sounds good. Let's start out with your <laughs> workshops. So when you have your workshops, every instructor has that one aha moment that they're excited to teach their students. What is the big, what is the big, biggest trick or or the number one trick that you find makes all your students go, oh my goodness, this, and you'll hear them say it at the table. They'll say, this was worth the price of admission. What is that trick?
2: You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question, and I'm sure I can I can remember that that kind of thing has happened. But uh, I, when I teach a fly tying class, and I do this, you know, lately I've been doing, Carol and I both have been doing tons of Zoom club talks since the pandemic hit. I mean, sometimes four in a week, you know, just crazy numbers. But um, And at the end of each one, I tie flies, usually at the end, just whenever they want it. And what I say to them is what I say when I tie at a club live um, is that there are got to be, by this point, Roderick Hig brown wrote back in, what, the 60s or something, that there were 30,000 established fly patterns. By now, there got to be 100,000 easily, if not twice that. So I can give you two excellent fly patterns, but I would rather give you two excellent fly patterns and teach you some things you can use for the rest, you know, often for the rest of your fly tying career. And I'll give them some pretty straightforward things, but I would say the number one, uh, and it's so simple. It's, it, it's almost self apparent, but a lot of people don't, I didn't for a long time, they don't pick it up. And it's just, and I, what I also tell them is I've asked professional fly tires, people who write books, people who teach fly tying, you know, and the, What is the one thing you would tell fly tires to improve their flies? And they all say pretty much the same thing. It all boils down to leave room for the head. And as you and I know, April, most flies, especially trout flies, have a thread head and people don't leave room for it. And then the head is slower to make. It's sloppy. It's unstable. It's liable to fall apart. And it's just sinfully ugly. But it's not even doing something. It's not doing something. Just don't fill that eye length of space, hook eye, uh, behind the hook eye. And then you've got a place for the thread head, and it's going to be faster to tie, cleaner, neater, more fun, and it's going to be more durable. So that's, that's probably the biggest tip I give people, even though, you know, to an experienced flight tire, they just kind of go, of course yeah
1: no, i I hear you there, but surprisingly, that's probably I mean, as you'd know, eighty percent of your students will crowd the head, so it's definitely yeah. something that most fly tires need to pay attention to. What about on the other side of the fly, if you're looking at the gap, how much space do you like to leave between? Like, do you have any, what are your proportions on a trout fly if you're trying not to fill up any space here?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I honestly wish more people asked it, you know, when I do, when I do tying, I mean, I'll tell them anyway, but, um, I see so many, especially beginning tires fill up the gap, which some call the gape and nobody really knows what to call it. Uh, but it's one of the two. And, and then when you fill that thing up too much, if you fill it halfway up, even in most hooks you've pretty much ruined the fly. You're going to lose a lot of fish on that fly. That's been my experience. I, I assume that's something like that has been yours. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got to, A, keep that, this is my feeling, A, keep that in mind when you select the hook. That's huge. Because as you know, some hooks are 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 just standard length and they're going to have a big gape on them. Some are actually short shank and they're going to have an even bigger gape. Other hooks are long shank. They're going to have a narrow gape. Um, And so pick your pick your, your, your hook well. And the next thing is, as you tie, be careful not to fill up the gape. because I've seen people, especially early ti- beginning tires, show me flies and the fly looks fine, but there's just nothing there. And I'm going, you know, you, you you're not going to land a fish on this. You're just not gonna, if you, all you're going to do is make him a little mad because it's going to scratch his lip a little on the way out. And, I mean, and you see that so often and it's such an important thing, but, you know, I'm glad you asked that because it's just so important to fly tires.
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, I learned how to tie flies through, I started really with Atlantic salmon books. And so it was hammered in my head really early about proportions and even kind of these unwritten, well, I guess, written rules, you know, five wraps here and X amount of wraps there. And what about trout flies? Because I admit, apart from chronomids, I don't tie trout flies. I would just rather buy them. Are there <laughs> the same rules there? Um, just squinting and it's just really finicky, but so I totally commend you that you can devote your attention to those flies, but are there also the same rules of proportions?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, now I don't know if this is true. Maybe, maybe you can tell, tell me if I'm right about this, but you know, my my main fish that I fish for out, outside of the local sea run cutthroat and salmon on the beaches sometimes and other saltwater fishes. But mostly I go after trout and streams, trout and lakes, largemouth bass and lakes, smallmouths, in, mainly in rivers but also in lakes, and the pan fishes. And so that's a pretty big range. And in my experience, of all the flies that I tie for different fishes, um, trout flies, I think, to me at least, are th- – proportions are the most important with trout flies. And I I say that because if you, you know, so often we're imitating something and the, and trout can, as you know, can be really, really cagey. And so if you, if you make the wings too long, maybe the trout won't get hooked. If you put the, if you uh, make the, the hackle too big or the tail too short, maybe it won't look like what it's supposed to imitate. Um, you get, you get the wings in the wrong location, you get something wrong and the fly won't, won't swim right or float right, you know, take the right position on the water. Um, just the list goes on and on. And, and I'm glad you asked that because about a year ago, it was a year before that almost, I started working on a fly proportion chart and I, I worked on it every like five days a week for an hour a day or so for several months at least until I got the darn thing done. And then I put it up on our website. So if anybody wants it, it's free. You just go to our website, SkipMorrisFlyTying.com. dot com. It's on the front page. Go in, print out all you want. So that thank you for that opportunity to promote that. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tell me more though. Tell me more about this
1: chart. So because with trout flies, you're right. You've you've got to factor in balance, and you've got to. There are so many different elements and and considerations. Tell me yeah. about this chart. What what do the proportions look like?
2: Well, it's. um Carol and I took pictures of sample flies for each category. Like there's one for, uh, emergers. There's a category for standard dry flies for parachutes. You know, there's a lot of categories of, of trout flies and you go to that and there's going to be a picture of it with markings on the, I believe on the photo too. Right, Carol? Yeah. Weren't there? Not on the 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 photo. photo. Oh, okay, so there's a photo of the fly. then there's an illustration of the fly, and the illustration has all these markings on it that show that, for example, the wing on a standard dry fly should be uh measured from the tip of the eye to the middle of the bend, and then you look below, and there's an image there's a an illustration of the hook that would go with that fly showing you wing is here, hackles here, tail is here, so everything fits together, and then there's a a little list that shows wing and then it, you know, colon, and then it has the length of the wing and, and so forth.
1: I'm going to look it up right now. So so tell me about the tail length. Why I see here you've got an A, you know, you've got a traditional dry fly, a parachute dry fly, and a Comparadun slash, slash Sparkledun. Can you explain to me why C has a shorter tail versus the traditional dry and the parachute?
2: Which one has the shorter tail?
1: The Comparadun.
2: Oh, the compare done? Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I think the there's not a simple answer <laughs> because what I did is I got out all my books that have various charts. I mean, these go way back. Some of them go back to oh the forties and I got all those out and I double checked them and and made a list of what they thought. And then I used both my, my experience as a fly tire, just my eye, plus my personal experience in what makes the fly sit right and look right and hook fish and all that stuff. And that's when I came up with those proportions. So on a traditional dry fly, I mean, the the old rule was it should sit up on its hackles and it's the tips of its tails on a countertop and the hook should just touch the countertop. And my experience has been that if I make the tail, uh, I believe the tail is exactly the full length of the hook from tip of item to the tip edge of the bend, right? That gets you that result. But also I have always tied them that way and have done some experimenting and it just seems to make the flies float best and fish right. The comparadon lies with its body, as you know, down right on the water and it's just a different look. And so the, the tails just start to uh, I think they, could possibly interfere with hooking fish. But basically in the end, I, I had to trust my sensibilities on that stuff and it I've tied them with the tail, you know, longer and they just didn't seem right.
1: Are you more passionate about tying trout flies or, or, well, I guess streamers are trout flies, but are you more passionate about dry flies or streamers? Cause I honestly can't tell looking at your work.
2: <laughs> um, You know, I just, uh, everything that I've tied, I've never gotten into Atlantic salmon flies because that's its own world, you know, and you have to go and to street corners and deal with uh, real shady characters to get the materials sometimes, but that's not really relevant. That doesn't, that's not it. Um, Almost every kind of fly tying I've really enjoyed. uh, I just don't, I don't saltwater fish. So I've never gotten too much into saltwater patterns uh, outside of, you know, Pacific Northwest, but not not the tropical kind. And I'm not a big steelheader though. I think they're magnificent fish. And I have caught a number of steelhead, but it's, I've just never grabbed me. I just not in my soul as much as the fish that I have fallen for, but they are amazing. And I I would (laughs) never disparage them in any way. Uh, So I'm not real big in a steelhead flies, even though I tied them commercially for, for, for a few years for Kaufman's. But I just, you know, my favorite was, was trout flies, but I've always loved doing bass flies, the flared hair and all that stuff. So it, kind of everything.
1: Cause it looks like you've got quite a few trout streamers in your books. Mm-hmm. Is it, I mean, is it kind of refreshing when you're 50 pages in of dry flies and you get to finally do a stickleback? <laughs> Does it, is it a little refreshing <laughs> having some streamer time or do you put them in just cause you feel like you're obligated to?
2: Um I suppose you know I want to balance out the books so I want to have uh whatever belongs there and uh but no I do enjoy tying streamers they're pretty cool. I mean I kind of miss that people don't that people hardly ever fish the old classic streamers and they had their drawbacks you know the black ghost and and this the list goes on I could I'd have to think about it to come up with a bunch of them but uh there are so many, the Mickey Finn, those are both in clear and simple, but um, there's, they still catch fish. Boy, that's for sure. I mean, I, I have fished both those flies a fair amount, but um, yeah, the the simple answer is I just, anything that has to do with trout or bass or panfish, I, I enjoy tying, you know, I've tied crayfish flies for panfish, all kinds of them and, and the bass stuff and panfish stuff. And, and I, I enjoy nymphs as much as dry flies, and emergers in, in, and soft tackles and tying trout flies. The one thing I've I had, I have never really, in trout fishing, trout flies, I think the the fly that I haven't thrown myself into at some point or another is traditional wet flies. And when I've tied them, I've had to work real hard to figure them out. And then I have to go back and refigure them. I think they're really neat. I mean, I love, despite its name, I love the cow dung. I think it's a beautiful wet fly and there are others. Um, but I've never really gotten too much into that but i've certainly tied a lot of them and fished a lot of them especially these last two years after davy's influence um, that's
1: where that was exactly my next question because as soon as you yeah. say trout streamers i think of davy especially the classic yeah. stuff he's mm-hmm. got a real eye for the classic stuff yeah
2: yeah with the exception of his he probably talked to you or you probably aware of his uh muddler daddy or did no he talk i don't to think so that? yeah it's <laughs> it's uh that's his baby and uh yeah i i got his uh videotape or i'm sorry not a videotape now is dvd and studied that and he loves that fly and it's it's pretty much a dry muddler with long legs that are knotted pheasant so that they wiggle around in the water i've got a fly i call the skip's promise that uh does that in a whole different way that i've been experimenting with but oh yeah that stuff is so fun because i mean the upstream wet Upstream soft tackle, I love because it just catches fish. And uh, and what his theory about it kind of matches what I always suspected about it is that if you try to swing that fly, a soft tackle, the hackles are so soft, so pliant that they kind of get smashed down against the hook. You know, it's not like wet fly hackles. And so he fishes it upstream, and and it just lets that current undulate and work those hackles. And then the little bit of – his method puts a little bit of pull on the fly, so that kind of makes it breathe. And it's deadly, uh, has been my experience. And then the other thing that I love in his methods – he's got more than these two – but is when he has that that upper wet fly dancing on the water. And uh, it just (sighs) – I, I swear the trout are down there and they're sometimes they're not in a mood to eat anything. And they look up there and that thing's bouncing around. And they look up again, and they ah, you know, and they just charge it and they hit so hard, they're really mad at it, you know, but it's, it's, uh, it's exciting and it's really fun.
1: I always wonder how a lot of these older guys feel about the new methods of fishing. I say new, it's not new, but you know, nowadays everything's all about stripping big streamers and swinging big intruders. And a a lot of the real fishy methods are slowly disappearing, you know, grease lining, um, trout, trout spay is bringing a lot of this stuff back. Do you have any opinions on, on some of, that and how a lot of these flies are being fished. I guess my question is not clear, but do you think that we're losing a lot of our older, but tried and tested methods?
2: Oh yeah. You know, and I, and I think honestly that um, we, we are more than ever perhaps, but, uh, or maybe not, I don't know, but I mean, we, that's kind of always been the trend. Um, Wet flies, were, I don't know if it was dry flies or wet flies were the most popular back in say the forties or the early fifties. But I mean, the wet fly was huge. In fact, I would have to say it's a wet fly. If you go back to, uh, I've got a book by Ray Bergman called trout and he's got just pages and pages and pages of wet flies, a couple of pages of dry flies, maybe three or four, one page of nymphs, you know, nymphs were, nobody fished nymphs. They're crazy things. And a bunch, a fair number of streamers, but it was just wet flies, wet flies, just page after page. And they would swing them. And then everybody started thinking, well, that's a silly way to fish a fly. You know, it doesn't, what do you got a fly with wings that's swimming through the water? Well, and then guess what? You know, Dave Hughes and, uh, and Davey Watton, and I'm trying to think of his name. One of Dave's heroes. He really promoted the wet, the, the soft tackle. <sighs> anyway, um, you know, there are a number of mayflies that emerge underwater wings and all and caddisflies flies will dive into the water and swim down to drop their eggs and then get caught in the current winged flies are in the water. Insects are in the water quite frequently and the wet fly makes perfect sense. Um, so the wet fly went away and now it's really come back strong and the soft tackle was all but forgotten. Sylvester Nims, until he promoted that, and that was back in the late seventies, I think. But and then it slowly, thanks to Dave Hughes, more more than anybody, I think, caught on and caught on more and more. Now a lot of people fish soft tackles a lot. But bottom line, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's funny because you know, I, like you, I speak all over the country, all, all over the continent, and and I get you get to know the people in the business, and most of them are just great people, and and so I know the people who are writing the books, for example, on nymph fishing. You read their books and there's a lot in there about, you know, uh, check nymphing, which has about a, seven names now, contact nymphing, euro nymphing, you know, it goes on tight line nymphing. But they also have a lot in there about indicator fishing. But you talk to a lot of, I talk to a lot of anglers now and they don't even want to talk about indicator fishing. It's like, it's like wet fly fishing was, at, you know, in the seventies. It's like, why would, Anybody in their right mind bother with that when we could be check nymphing. Well, I check nymph and and it is deadly under the right circumstances, but I can reach out 50 feet with an indicator and fish water. They aren't fishing and do it well. I mean, I, I think both methods are good, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's as though people are not just abandoning indicator fishing. They're trying to bury it in some cases. It's crazy because it works. And the people who are writing the books about it swear by it, they use it and they promote it and they you know it doesn't make sense but you know this life
1: do you do you know the earliest reference to the indicator i mean in the the history
2: i do um and it's your timing's excellent because i just finished up an essay about my experience in going to nymph fishing which like a lot of people back when i first nymph fished we were really just nervous as could it could be about it. And we didn't know how to do it. We felt like flies down there where you can't see it on like a dry fly. We didn't know how to know if we got a strike, you know. Gary Borger, well, actually Dave Whitlock came up with, he even called it a strike indicator. He was doing things like putting a piece of, a short piece of bright fly line, threading it up his uh, leader. And then that would be near the surface where the fly line was. And he would watch that. And then Gary Borger uh, cut a, uh, what was it, Carol, a wine cork? I think I can't remember now, but he cut something that was cork might've been in two and then he shellacked it, you know, and he put a hole in the middle and he used a toothpick. And then about after the, after his book came out, I've got it here. uh, basic nymph fishing, I think is the title, um, which was back, I believe in 79 or 80. I'm just guessing. Then everybody went crazy for nymph fishing. I mean, everybody was afraid of it. All of a sudden just embraced it because there was an indicator. You could see the indicator and, uh, and so it, it really started to catch on fast. I mean, and, uh, it was, it was funny cause here in the Pacific Northwest, probably every fly fisher who looked at that, at read that book, just looked up at some point and went corky. Cause we have this little, I'm sure you've seen them as the corky. a corky. fish. Yeah. This oh, little, I
1: used to use them all the time for salmon fishing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A little cork ball and a bunch of different colors. Great indicator. It still is a good indicator. Um, and then everybody started threading that and corkies, it turns out fit a toothpick just perfectly. So, yeah, Yeah, so that's, (laughs) that's basically the history of, of the strike indicator.
1: Right. What other history do you know? Do you know the history
2: of the Wooly bugger? Um, I don't know too much about it, but I think, I think, I think it came out in the early eighties and, and my read on it was, you know, um, back when I was a kid, the woolly worm and if you're, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, the whirly, if you cut off, if you cut the tail short on a woolly bugger, basically you just made it into a woolly worm. It was a nymph. And I think they fished it every way they could think of, but it did catch fish. It was a good fish catcher. And sometimes it still is. I fish one once in a while now still, because these old patterns of fish haven't seen them. People have abandoned them. But um, woolly worm was a nymph and then Russell Blessing, I believe is his name put a marabou tail on it and created the woolly bugger. And now there are people out there who, you know, before there were people who the only way they would nymph is with a woolly worm. And now you find people who the only way they nymph fish or really not nymph fish, but streamer fish is will it, with a woolly bugger. And it doesn't matter if they're after tarpon, you know, it's, I mean, it's a good fly. It is, but I think there are a lot of other flies for certain applications that are better, but you can't convince them of that. It's just a woolly bugger for everything. But I think that's where it happened. It just, he added a tail to a woolly worm and boom.
1: Gotcha. All right. I'm going to run you through some rapid fire questions. <laughs>
2: okay. Not too personal, I hope.
1: No, no, no. I'll okay. be about, about fly okay, tying. Good. <laughs> so, Old school chenille or new polar palmer
2: chenille? Um, I'll answer a little different question because I use a bunch of different real flashy chenilles for various purposes and and variations. I still use old school chenille sometimes. It just depends on the fly if it's the right fly for it. That if I feel it's the right fly for it, I use it because I still like chenille. Um, But uh, there's a, a cleaner, neater... Uh, effect with verneal, also called ultra chenille, and you can weave it and get some great effects. So, for certain things, I will u- use ultra chenille or verneal, even makes good eyes on certain, uh, nymphs. And then for others, I will still use chenille. And then all those other ones, the bright ones, the crazy ones, yeah, if it's the right fly, you bet.
1: Okay. What brand of hook do you use typically? Well,
2: <laughs> I always say this when I, when I tie for a group or at a show or something, I always say, look, I'm with the Daiichi company on the pro staff. You can, so when I tell you that Daiichi makes the finest hooks in the universe, you can either believe me or you can figure that I'm just sucking up to the, <laughs> to, the, to, the to the company. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it's almost always Daiichi. I mean, they don't make they, – they do make – I really believe they make great hooks. But um, they don't – no hook company carries everything. So once in a while, I use other hooks from other companies. But I've got a few Daiichis that I absolutely love, and that's mostly what I rely on. Hooks or tubes? I've never tied a tube fly. I know that sounds crazy. I, I think they're pretty cool. And I like the idea, you know, um, in lake fishing for trout, I do find that I have to work harder to not lose trout on, in general on long shank hooks. And a tube fly would be a perfect solution to that. But it's, it's kind of like Atlantic salmon. It's, it's just something that is entirely worth exploring uh, that I haven't explored. What I like about the tube flies is short shank hook. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Round thread or flat thread? You know, I, when I, when I found out long ago about unithread, which is a a pretty tightly woven thread, um, I just really liked it and have ever since. Uh, so for my trout flies, smaller trout flies, I almost always go with unit thread unless I'm tying something really tiny, you know, like a 22, 25, 24, something like that. Then I will sometimes go to a different thread. But the funny thing is, I really like Danville three-aught for big flies, and it's a flat thread. It's, it's hardly woven at all. And I don't know why I like it, <laughs> but I do. When I go to a woven thread for six-aught or three-aught, I don't care for it as much. The problem is, it's getting hard to get Danville at all. So I have to sniff around and find one I like, but yeah, I like a, I like a good texture. I like the way the texture grips onto itself. I mean, it's almost, it really is almost a, a rough. And so it, it holds to itself. It just suits me. So I don't think it's the last word, but it just suits me.
1: What are your thoughts on UV?
2: Uh, I use it a lot. Well, no, oh, that's right. They can't see this, but <laughs> right here at my.
1: But I I can That's, Balloon UV. yeah.
2: Here.
1: Um, when, when it when it first came out, did you roll your eyes? I remember when UV the whole UV craze happened, and I rolled my eyes. What was your initial reaction to it?
2: That's been interesting because in a book I wrote called Flight tying Made and Simple Two, I didn't even recommend UV because I hadn't come to like it yet. And that didn't come out forever ago, probably eight, nine years, ten years at the most. Um, the problem I ran into with UV is that first of all, it wasn't as tough as epoxy. The second thing I didn't like about it is it was just tacky as could be. I mean, everything stuck to it. The fly itself stuck to it. And people were very excited about it. And I can understand why, because epoxy is tricky. You, you have to search around to find an epoxy. Epoxy's great. I mean, it, it sets up just slick, absolutely tack-free. It's the toughest of them all, in, in my experience. But you have to search around to find a two-part epoxy that doesn't have dangerous vapors, because a lot of them really do. And then you have to find one that also, uh, well, I guess that's the main thing is it doesn't have bad vapors. So you have to search that out. And if you find one, the next time you go to buy it, that particular model of epoxy is gone. I've run into that many times. So about lately though, this, that loon that I showed you, the, the, what is it? The fin, that stuff has a little bit of tack, but almost no tack. And it's so much easier to use. You know, you just smear it on, zap it with the light. You don't have to mix it. You don't have to try to replace it when you, when you run out of it. So yeah, I, I really do like the, the uh, UV finish, but I didn't for a long time. And it took me a while to come around to it, but the last six, seven years I've been using it a lot,
1: but the materials, what about the feathers? You know, now all of a sudden there's all the, there is UV hackle and. UV chenille.
2: Oh, you're talking, that's different. That's the stuff that's supposed to be, give off extra brightness in the water, right? I have to test it. I don't know. What about you? You've probably worked with that stuff, haven't you? Uh,
1: I don't know. And this is one of those things where I don't, you, as you know, you reach a point in your life and your fly fishing career where you're just happy with where you're at. And so I can't tell if it's that I'm, Calling BS on some things, or if I've just gotten old, because there are a couple things I kind of roll my eyes at. Right, I, I roll my eyes a little bit at UV. I roll my eyes a little bit at switch rods or certain fly lines and sink tips. At some point, I just kind of think it like if it's not broken, maybe it doesn't really need fixing. So maybe that's me being old and <laughs> I don't. I don't know because I I have fly tying friends who are I, I respect. I would. I would. Honestly, I respect the hell out of them and they swear by it. So I, I think it probably does work, but I, for me at some point, I just had a mental roadblock and I haven't been able to step over okay. it. I was hoping, I was hoping you would change my mind, honestly.
2: <laughs> but. Well, the UV is, the UV is so handy. You know, that's part of it. Honestly. Um, But I I must say, I I don't perceive you in any way as old and grouchy. I really don't. I'm old. I know old. You need to
1: spend more time with me. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? At some point, you just get to a point where, and and I guess this is probably a great way to transition back into kind of where you're at with your career and where where you're going to go with it. At some point, you just kind of get to a point where you roll your eyes. Like If somebody asked me one more time about mo tips and all the new sync tips and why do I need this for this application? And is it okay that this gadget line is a foot shorter than this? And which switch rod would I go at some point? I just stop and just say, (laughs) it's just too, all too confusing. It's just too much. Um, and I do truly the insecure part of me thinks that I, I, I probably have just gotten tired trying to keep up with the fly fishing industry at some point. Um, cause there's probably nothing wrong with any of those things. I just am tired trying to keep up with it. Did that ever happen to d- to you? Did you ever just feel tired of trying to keep up with it?
2: Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Unqualified. Yes. I mean, the thing is, um, you know, my perception after all these years in the fly business, uh, which is pretty much since 1980, um, reels, rods, lines, fly tying materials, everything, you know, hooks. Um, there's this need to come up with something new and to promote it as the greatest thing. And once in a while, it really is an innovation. Sometimes it's something that's good or has its place. And then a lot of times it's just pure hype um, because hype sells. Uh, If you have the same, let's say rods, you're selling year after year um, and you're, and you're, competition is coming out with new rods, you know, this is our new hyper extended double whammy, whatever, then you start to fall behind your, your people start, I think they, or at least the rod comp, all the companies think this, that they start to be thought of as not innovative, not exciting. So they give all their attention to the other rod company. So they're under, I think a lot of pressure to come up with new stuff. And I, I think most of the companies are responsible and they try not to put things out there that are just hype and nothing else. But I don't think they're always successful. I think some of that stuff is is kind of silly or useless, and it usually dies of its own accord because of that. But for a while, everybody's got to have this new uh, quadruple-aught weight fly rod that you can't cast if you breathe, you know, because the line the line's like a human hair. I mean, it, but but some of the stuff that comes out is either – interesting to me or fun i mean i do have a tenkara rod which isn't the real new thing now but it's so different from other kinds of fly fishing and i have enjoyed it i i wouldn't want to be limited to it and i don't want to hook a 15 inch hot wild rainbow i do not because i don't care what they say i don't want to have that fish on a rod that doesn't have a reel that has backing on it but uh but you know, in in the right circumstances, it's a fun thing to do and you can make the fly, do things that you almost can't make it do any other way. So it has, it has value and I can see how people get hooked on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy, I guess the bottom line is I enjoy trying new things. Uh, but sometimes I look at things and I go, no, not unless I start hearing people actually telling me there's something good, really worthwhile about it and telling me what that is. Uh, and then, so then I just, ignore it.
1: Yep. <laughs> gotcha. So what is next for you?
2: Uh, I'm going to keep working on my writing. I'm going <laughs> to push and push on that. And I still do enjoy doing uh, instructional books. And so when I, when I finish, usually I start with the heavy duty stuff, the literary writing. I do that for a couple hours and then, then my brain can move slide back a little and I can write well, but concentrate on, on, conveying ideas more than conveying images and feelings and even sounds and sense, uh, which is what instructional writing is. I mean, it's just so different that I can do the one and then it doesn't fry me for doing the other. And I can kind of be re- re-invigor- well, invigorated by it. And then after about three and a half hours of writing, I can't <laughs> come up with a word that anybody should read. You know, it's just, I, I can't do it. It's that intense. I mean, writing is crazy. Just, since I got onto that, but I mean, you change one word in a par- in a paragraph, and the the sound of the word, and the length of the word, and the rhythm, and the meaning, all play off all the other words and all the other sentences. It changes the sentence it's in. It changes the se- the paragraphs that are around the paragraph that you just changed. I mean, it's a monster. It's as it's as involved as music or fly fishing writing is. And uh, you know, we we start out thinking that if we can speak, we can write, and that's true. But writing as a as an art form is just it's almost not related to what we call English, I think. That's just my opinion. So that's not quite what you asked. Well, I'm gonna
1: (laughs) No, that's all right. Look, I love it when these when when we dart out. Um, here's something I've always wondered about writers that I've never actually asked out loud. So I have no idea if this is gonna come out right. But I have found with the writers that I have interviewed that a lot of them aren't that great with public speaking and I think that we expect them to come out and sound like poets when they speak but it's because I I think most people highly underestimate just how much time is spent staring at a single sentence trying to shuffle words around oh yeah do you ever feel pressure as a writer because you are actually one of the more well-spoken writers that I've that I've had on the show (laughs) do you ever feel pressure to sound eloquent and like a writer um Yeah. Do you ever feel the pressure? Well, you know,
2: between the music business and the fly fishing business, I've spent so many thousands of hours in front of a microphone that, that I just kind of know how I'm going to handle it. And, and often, so often when I'm speaking, I'm instructing. So then that becomes the purpose more than anything else is to convey the ideas of something that can be very difficult, as you know, to, to convey, you know, to make people understand how to tie a fly properly. That, that can be just insanely difficult. And, uh, so my concentration is on that. And when I speak, um, in, in this situation or any situation, the first thing I accept is that my grammar is not going to be anywhere near perfect. If it were, or if I tried to do that, it wouldn't be anyway. But if I tried to do that, I would barely be able to speak a word. And I wonder if that is sort of what what hangs up some writers is they feel that they are in fact a writer and they need to speak with perfect grammar for English. And, and even as you say, be, be, be poetic. But if, if I do that, I'm hogtied. I, I just, I mean, I've tried it. I've tried working with a script and I don't like it. I, I come off real stiff. Um, so I guess that's the best answer. But you know, I, before I was, I wrote in my head from the time I was 13 and I got it. I got a degree from a university in English, a BA. And, uh, and all these years that I wrote in, instructive stuff. I mean, I had a pile of, of, uh, what we call style guides next to me and, and, and a thesaurus and a, uh, dictionary and I worked to try to improve my writing. Um, but the whole time I had had all this experience in front of the public, in front of, uh, adoring people where I played music and passing out people and violent people, every kind of people. And I'm just used to getting up and playing it off the cuff. So for me, it's kind of like breathing, but yeah, with writers, I mean, I I know a lot of writers, I know some very successful published novelists and the whole thing. And, uh, they do tend to be a little bit on the shy side. Um, but there is, you know, in general, I have found there is no, in the arts, you know, I was talking about this earlier, there is no artistic personality. It seems like the whole, the whole range is, is, is there, but still writers spend so much time alone. I mean, just you, you talked, you mentioned, uh, rewriting Hemingway said, I'm trying to remember if I got, the, I may have this wrong, but I think he said he wrote the last page of I'm trying to remember, it might've been a farewell to arms 39 times till he got it right. And I just don't think that's unusual, honestly. You write, you write, you rewrite, you rewrite, you go back and look at it, you throw it out, you rewrite, then you, you know, and that, that's going to make you pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: um, I'd like to finish up on a note with a note about bugs. So I know you obviously are quite a bug enthusiast. You like the entomology subject. Is there a bug in particular that's really fascinating to you? And if so, uh, what is it and why?
2: Hmm. You know, I, as a trout fisher, yeah, I, I love the aquatic insects, all the insects, uh, even the lowly scud, you know, that little pathetic thing that just putters around and dies finally. Um, boy, that's a tough one because I go through these little love affairs with different hatches, um, you know, this summer, you know, where we live. We've been staying pretty much fishing close to home because of the pandemic, you know, everybody makes their mind up what they're going to do about it, and that was our choice. But we've got lakes near here that, uh, starting in about mid-July through early September, every calm evening, there are chronomids, females coming back to the water, and for, a, for three or four weeks, there are these fairly large termites dropping on the water, and we get this great evening rise, and it's... Oh, I love it. I love it. And I go out, we go out there a little <laughs> early and fish for a while and then, and then it starts happening and we just chase these fish all over the lake. And it's, I love that kind of fishing. It's, there's a lot of that in the book I wrote with Brian Chan. And that was the part where I had the, actually was more accomplished than Brian. There's not much in trout lake fishing in which I am more accomplished or even close to as accomplished as Brian, but that was the one area really. And, uh, and flight tying maybe, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, the, lately it's been cronomids, you know, ovipositing cronomids and termites, but um, I've gone through phases. I went through a hexagenia phase and I was going up like two, three nights a week to this lake that was pretty far away. And then driving home way after dark, cause they hatch right at dark and just, Loving it. You know, it's just it's insane for them. I've done the same thing for the Pale Morning done. I've done the same thing for Blue Winged Olives and for Midges. And, you know, just that's kind of the way I do things. I, I sort of fall for something and then I I just just keep going back and and trying to learn it and and really just unfold it and find go deeper and deeper into it. And that's the same with tying flies sometimes too. I've, I'll have a fly, and for three or four months, I'll tie mostly that fly, and just keep trying to hone it down, figure out how to tie it better, more efficiently. Uh, anything I can do to make that fly better, and I'll study other people's ways of doing it, and uh, and look at flies they have that they have tied and see w- what the results they get. And anyway, long answer to a short question, but that's the answer.
1: <laughs> that's all right. Have you ever seen a hairworm in the lake?
2: A hairworm. Kn-
1: so I've recently learned about hairworms. Do you know what they I are? I might know.
2: They're they they they're probably about an inch or a little bit longer, maybe quite a bit longer, and they look like a black, thick hair. Is that what they are? Yes. Yeah, I've seen them and I don't... Yes, know.
1: do you know what they are? No. Do you, do you want me to blow your mind right now? I do. My daughter was watching this YouTube clip and I couldn't help but overhear mayfly. Anyway, get this. So the mayfly... Nymph, I believe. Now it's been a while since I've watched it, so you might have to YouTube it after we finish, you know, this podcast. So the hairworm larva gets in the mayfly nymph, or something like that. Oh, really? And the cricket, the cricket, eats the mayfly. Then the hairworm that was in the mayfly, obviously grows within the cricket. And it plays with its neurology and its its brain, and uh-huh. it makes the cricket go to the water and huh. jump into the water, which cricket would never do. Yeah. Makes the cricket jump into the water, and as soon as that cricket's body touches the water, the hairworm pushes itself out of the cricket's rectum or butt or whatever it is, <laughs> and emerges and squiggles itself all the way out of the out of the cricket, and then obviously lives through the water to do its Cycle all over again with the mayflies oh and the gosh. crickets. Oh, and if the may if the cricket doesn't drown, if the cricket doesn't drown, then the cricket can obviously continue on as if nothing ever happened. But YouTube, I think it was Deep Look. I let her watch these horrible nightmare <laughs> stories on Deep Look because it's all biology. But yeah, hairworm, Deep Look, YouTube. I'll send you a link in an email. It will change your life. You will never look at crickets or hairworms the same way ever again.
2: Wow. So they actually—that's. Amazing that they their life cycle includes a terrestrial insect and then they live in the water. That's insane! Wow. So Isn't humans it, and, who,
1: and who knew that mayflies were yeah. having these crazy hairworms in them?
2: I know, and that crickets were going senile because of them. That's bizarre. Or,
1: who knew that crickets? Did you know that crickets ate mayflies?
2: Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that.
1: Me neither. And that's why yeah. if you're lost in the bush and you're trying and this all happened because we had a master class on wilderness survival with Tom Brown. And he was saying, Don't eat crickets because um, they could have parasites. And so I thought that was really interesting. And sure enough, they do have parasites. Yeah.
2: Well, what happens if we get a hairworm?
1: I I don't know. I'm not gonna volunteer to find <laughs> out. We'd have to have to look it up. But uh, yeah, I mean I suspect we probably have other worms in our body anyway, but
2: we get them. Yeah. Yes, we get them.
1: Yeah, but I, wow. I don't know. I don't know what would happen. But yeah, so those little hairs that you see swimming, those are hair worms, and wow. they came out of a cricket's butt.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's something to put on your resume, huh? Wow. Yeah, it's not
1: very romantic. It certainly doesn't have the <laughs> story of a pale done. Yeah. Now, listen, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, I feel like there are, well, there's years upon years of your resume that we haven't touched on. Is there anything that was a career highlight that I've missed that you'd like to bring up?
2: Hmm. No, I mean, I guess, uh, recently I was thrilled because, uh, a fly fishing literary magazine did pick up one of my essays. That was pretty cool. I was excited about that. I mean, I've had essays in other magazines, but this was a, you know, literary fly fishing. It's the Drake, by the way. Um, oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I think probably, you know, the most exciting thing for me was, Maybe it was when I had my first book, you know, got my first okay from from Nick Lyons for the for the uh, for the rod book, but I it might have been for Clear and Simple. I mean, you know, that's was such a breakthrough. I didn't I didn't know if I'd ever be published in a mag in a book rather again. I thought that might be my one book was the rod book, and I was just insane for my third big period in fl- of fly tying, and then I got the go ahead on that book on Clear and Simple, and I just I was walking just floating through the air. It was amazing i you couldn't have wiped the smile off my face you know with a spatula. I was thrilled, and I guess that was one of them one of the big highlights
1: i'm I'm amazed that you haven't been published in more literary publications if i'm being honest
2: well i I think you know i didn't really put out much honestly that was literary uh I got an essay in uh this book, uh, that was published back in 2000. Uh, what was that called? Tight lines. It was the Yale anglers journal. Yeah. That was pretty exciting actually. Cause they had a, an ex president in there and a, and a, and what else What there was a, one of the, the biggest real literary award is the, uh, Pulitzer. I think there was a Pulitzer anyway, but that's them. That's not me, but just to be in there with them was pretty exciting. And, and I actually wrote a, uh, I wrote a column for a magazine called just jazz guitar for about 12 or 13 years. And then magazines are having a tough time and the guy closed it down, but, uh, that was kind of fun. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think part of it is I just don't, didn't write very many. I was so busy writing the instructional books and trying to improve my writing. But, um, these last seven years I've really dug in and it's just, I'm just, uh, I just have immersed myself in writing. But I didn't really. These last seven years have been kind of preparation. So now, just this this year was when I started sending stuff out. And that's that's a big part of the reason is there wasn't anything to publish <laughs> till now. Well, that's a good that's a good reason.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what happens. <laughs> I'm really excited to watch and see what happens. I think that you deserve. You know, it's funny because you see all these showboaters and people who are really good at self promotion, and you just are so humble and you sit back and you just do this amazing work. And I feel like, you know, you're not out there on social media. You, you, you live a pretty quiet life. It seems, um, tell me if I'm wrong and I'm, I'm excited to see your work get out there and in front of more people because I think you really deserve it.
2: Well, thank you so much, April. That's, that's really kind of you. I appreciate that.
1: Did you want to add anything before we wrap it up? Cause we will wrap it up here. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me?
2: um, boy, nothing's coming to mind, April. I mean, you, you asked a lot of smart questions and and I've absolutely enjoyed this. I'm, I'm really grateful that you invited me, but uh, I mean, I could talk for another two hours, of course, because I'm old and because I've been doing this forever, but, uh, but this has just been a joy and I, I really am grateful that you invited me.
1: Well, thank you very much. And so we'll see you soon. And I will include all of the links for your books below in the show notes, as well as the hairworm link on YouTube.
2: Thanks again, April.
1: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.
0: Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.